You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the seventh episode of season seven. I hope you've had the chance to listen to last week's episode on the case of Henry Gaskin. Make sure you check it out if you haven't already. But before we get into this week's episode, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Two facts that sound like both. Did you know, in ancient Greece, Olympic athletes were expected to compete during all events buck naked, with no clothes on. Is it buck naked or butt naked? I feel like it's both. Anyway, they were Billy Bollocks. Completely Billy Bollocks, I think. The amount of viewers the Olympics got, if that was still the case, would probably at least double. But it's probably a good thing that they wear clothes now. Here is the show's second and final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. Here's your quote. The greatest glory in living lies not in never falling, but in rising every time you fall. Nelson Mandela. This week's case was suggested via email by listener Alex Jones, and we're in the village of Bethai, situated within the South Wales Valleys. Now, I'm going to get a lot of pronunciations wrong this week. Forgive me in advance. It's B-A-D-D-A-U. I think it's Bethai. Bethai. We'll go with that. So I'll put on a Welsh accent for that word and some of the place names. I'll do the best I can. I am English, so bear that in mind. Here's five quick fire facts about Beardai. <laughs> One, the word Beardai, trans- it sounds stupid me saying it, translates from Welsh into English as graves, a much simpler word. Number two, I'm just going to say Beardai. Beardai owes its existence and growth to the coal industry. Number three, the Royal Mint Experience is located around two miles west of the centre of Bedai. It's the only place in the world where you can watch the UK's coins being made. Number four, the village has its own skate park featuring a back and forth run with a quarter pipe and flat bank on either side of a fun box, whatever that means, as well as a mini ramp. And number five, there appears to have at one point in time been an annual carnival held in Bedai. There was uproar in 1961. It's funny if you'll find it on YouTube. Just type in Bedai Carnival. When it was announced that a Lady Godiva was to ride in the carnival, basically a blonde woman on a horse with like a bodysuit on, but like a nude coloured bodysuit. She was clothed. Absolute outrage in 1960s Bedai. As of the 2011 census, the estimated population of Bedai was 4,156. Let me quickly advise you that this podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. As always, listener discretion is advised. Our villain this week was a woman named Lee Ann Sabine, with 1941 being her logically estimated year of birth. I'll be using the name Anne to refer to her throughout the remainder of the story, so just bear that in mind. She used both names throughout her adult life. I am cautious about using the word villain to introduce Anne because a few aspects of this case have yet to be confirmed, so I'll leave it to you, the listener, to decide whether villain is a fitting description of her. One of two daughters born to her parents Ronald and Margaret Evans, her younger sister being Susan, 
Anne's less than idyllic childhood is thought to have been a major reason behind her becoming the woman she became. Ronald was a coal miner, as many men in the South Wales Valleys were, but her mum, Margaret, was a known petty criminal. She would often be in trouble with the law for offences such as theft. She also abandoned her two daughters when they were five and two respectively, and it appears as if Ronald wasn't there to pick up the pieces at first either. The two sisters bounced around the homes of relatives for a while before ending up in a Catholic orphanage. It was whilst there that they eventually found a foster home, but that didn't last long either. Ronald would go on to remarry another woman, her name is unknown, and the girls were allowed to live with them. Even though he was their father, Ronald and his new wife simply could not cope with Anne, whom they referred to as a devil child. She was rebellious, mischievous and conniving, and Ronald would often struggle to differentiate her lies from the truth. At some point during her younger years, likely when she was a teen or a preteen, Anne was sent to London to live with her Aunt Dorothy and Uncle Leslie. It's not clear whether Susan moved with her or if she remained with Ronald and his wife. If Anne was considered to be the one causing the difficulties, then it's logical to assume that only she was sent to England's capital city. Rather than discipline Anne to make her see sense and manage her negative traits, Dorothy and Leslie reportedly spoiled her, which will no doubt have only added further fuel to the fire. Having said that, Dorothy, an assistant matron at St Mary's Hospital in Paddington, central London, would encourage Anne to apply for similar jobs within the healthcare sector. That way, at least Anne could give something back to the community. It wouldn't excuse how she was, but I suppose it was a start. Anne did as she was encouraged and ultimately became a nurse at a hospital in Bedfordshire, East England. It was there where she met the man who would later become her husband, 28-year-old Korean War veteran John Sabine. John was married with two kids when he met Anne at the hospital. He'd gone there because some of the injuries he'd sustained during the conflict needed tending to. Eleven years John's junior, the 17-year-old Anne was very attentive and caring towards her patient and the two would go on to start an affair behind John's wife's back. Within just a few months, Anne fell pregnant with John's child. Upon hearing of the pregnancy, John's wife kicked him out of their marital home and he was forced to find a place of his own. It's assumed that Anne then went to live with John during that first pregnancy, but none of the sources I use confirm that. John's two kids from his first marriage, Caroline and Christopher, were told by their mum that their dad had died in the Korean War. Timeline-wise, that doesn't quite make sense, because the Korean War ended on July 27th, 1953, around five years before John met Anne, but it's not worth dwelling on. January 1959 saw the birth of John and Anne's first child, Susan, I suspect named after Anne's little sister, being brought into the world. The pair eventually got married in November 1960 after John's divorce was finalised and they didn't waste any time extending their family. Over the next five years, they welcomed three more children into the world. Stephen, Martin and Jane were their names, with the youngest being born at some point in 1965. Their time in the UK saw them living in various places, including Kent, Hereford and Swansea, before deciding to emigrate halfway around the world to Australia a short while after the birth of their fourth child. Once down under, the couple welcomed their fifth child, Lee Ann, into the world in 1967 and the family was complete. Or was it? 
The next couple of years of this timeline were incredibly difficult to verify, so parts of it may be slightly incorrect, but here is what happened as far as I can tell. The family initially lived in Australia, but at some point John, who was an accountant, was forced to flee the country after defrauding someone. The family fled to the neighbouring country of New Zealand and began their new life there. In around 1969, John and Anne dropped all of their kids off at a state-run nursery in the city of Auckland on New Zealand's North Island. Exactly what kind of establishment it was, I'm not sure, but it seems to have been the sort of place where parents could leave their children overnight. I say that because John and Anne told their children they would be picking them up in a few days' time, which they wouldn't have been able to do in a regular nursery. I've only got experience of UK nurseries and... I know for sure you can't drop your kids off for a couple of days. Regardless, the kids' parents did not return when they said they would. John and Anne had, in fact, decided to abandon their children and start a childless life in Perth, Western Australia. Anne wanted to pursue her dream of becoming a cabaret singer and used the stage names Lee Jones and Lee Martin. She referred to herself as Lee for most of her life, as far as I can tell, which I kind of alluded to at the start of the episode, but for simplicity, I'll continue to refer to her as Anne. Another theory for the move is that John was accused of further fraud whilst in New Zealand. He couldn't help himself, clearly, and would eventually get arrested whilst in Australia, but doesn't appear to have spent much time, if any, behind bars. By 1972, Anne's dream of becoming a cabaret singer had failed miserably, so she and John decided to move back to New Zealand. It was a secret move that none of their children were made aware of, because John and Anne made no effort to contact them. Instead, they lived a peaceful life breeding English Springer Spaniels on the North Island. They didn't even tell their neighbours that they had five kids. How bad is that? Over ten years passed without John and Lee making contact with their kids, but that all changed in the early 80s. They made an effort to reunite with each of their children, but as you'd expect, it didn't go down well. The kids were far from pleased at having been abandoned all those years ago and resented their parents for, effectively, ruining their lives. Imagine the effect that would have had on their mental health to be moved halfway across the world, away from everything and everyone you know, only to be abandoned two years later by the people that took you there, the people that you trust the most, your parents. It's awful. New Zealand's Minister for Social Development, who at the time I believe was Dame Margaret Ann Herkes, launched an investigation into the treatment of the children by John and Anne, but no charges would ever be brought against them. Wanting to clear their name, John and Anne got in touch with the evening daily newspaper, The Auckland Star, to put across their side of the story. In an article titled, Runaway Mum, I Did It For Love, Family Dream Went Wrong, Anne said, We felt cheap, dirty, but we adored our children and wanted to be with them so badly. She explained that they hadn't abandoned their children at all, it was quite the opposite. Anne and John had moved to Australia to raise money to support their children but they didn't realise that it would be as difficult as it was. They left themselves too out of pocket to afford a return flight to New Zealand, so were forced to remain in Australia. Anne went on to say, We were poor and had no money at the time. We went there on a four-week contract, hoping the money would be enough for a deposit on a house in Auckland. But when we got there, the agent didn't know anything about our contract. We were left with $20, and no fare back to our children in New Zealand. An interesting story, but one I have no doubt was completely fabricated. 
I can say that with some certainty because John and Anne abandoned their children for good around 1984. The children wouldn't hear their parents' names again until over 30 years later. I'm jumping ahead though, we'll get there. The Berkshire town of Reading, southeast England, is where John and Anne called home upon their arrival back in the UK, but their nomadic ways would see them move about quite a bit, as they had when they previously lived here. Being an accountant has its benefits, it's a job required in pretty much every country in the world, so it didn't take John long to find work. Anne managed to secure a customer-facing role at Jackson & Sons, a department store in Reading, but her soft skills weren't appreciated by her higher-ups. Being friendly to customers is great, but Anne took it to another level. She was described as being over-friendly and would regularly refer to customers as babe or darling. Her boss took her to one side on several occasions and said, professionalism is, and that is what I want, yeah, that's all. Even a written warning from Edward Jackson, one of the family-run store's bosses, didn't dissuade Anne from continuing her inappropriate behaviour. She was sacked in the autumn of 1992. The story will continue after these quick messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the story. Now in her early 50s, Anne was living in South Wales with John, which no doubt brought back many grim memories from her traumatic childhood. She began an extramarital affair with a hardened criminal named Steve, surname unknown, and would later move to England's southern coast to live with him for a period in his Bournemouth flat. Steve was the sort of criminal who would remove appendages if he didn't get his own way, so it's perhaps not too much of a stretch to think that Anne liked herself a bit of a bad boy. He was only in his mid to late twenties as well, by all accounts, and had once sought refuge in Anne's house whilst on the run from the police. On his person, he had a machete covered in the blood of one of his enemies. It might not come as much of a surprise to hear that Steve was physically abusive towards Anne, but she stuck by him. Did you know that on average, high-risk domestic abuse victims live with their abusers for 2.3 years before seeking help? You may have heard the common phrase that it takes around 7 attempts before a domestic abuse victim is able to successfully leave their abuser. Those are frightening statistics if true. The story gets even weirder. John, who had hired a private detective to follow Anne and her new lover, would eventually move in with them at the flat in Bournemouth. Imagine the dynamics of that living situation. By 1995, Anne and John must have reconciled and opted to leave third-wheeling Steve out of their relationship because they moved back to Wales without him. Still struggling to make ends meet, Anne at one point asked her family to give her some money. If they didn't, she said she'd end her life. Her granddad reportedly said in response to that threat, that's the best thing she could do for everyone. By February 1997, Anne's life had come full circle and she was back living in Bed-Eye with John in a block of flats named Tremicum. Interestingly, John wasn't seen at the flats very often and Anne would even tell some of her neighbours that she had moved there to escape her abusive husband, whom she referred to as a horrible bastard. 
The move had only been achieved through the crucial work of a women's refuge charity, Anne would tell people. It was all nonsense. The reality was that in 1997, John disappeared and was never seen alive again. Anne showed no concern for her husband's disappearance, failing to log a single missing person report or phone call to the police. She continued to claim his pension though, and he was left on the electoral register at the flat. Perhaps that's why she didn't inform anyone of his disappearance. Those who had seen John move in with Anne assumed the pair had simply decided to go their separate ways. Anne, or Mad Lee as she was known to some, was a very lively character who John perhaps could no longer deal with. One neighbour said of Anne, She was great fun, very lively and friendly. She reminded me of Dame Edna Everidge. She was such a character. She was always waving her arms around when she talked and called everyone babe or darling. So what had happened to John? Here's where the story becomes rather vague. Police believe he was murdered by Anne at some point in 1997, but they cannot confirm anything more than that. None of the other residents could recall seeing, hearing or even smelling anything suspicious coming from Anne's flat, which is a miracle considering what I'll soon tell you. Being alone it didn't seem to bother Anne. She took up gardening and happily tended to the communal garden she shared with her fellow residents. The only relationship she had after John disappeared was with a retired firefighter called Derek Ellis, but everyone he knew referred to him as Decker. Derek moved in with Anne in around 2006 and the pair remained an item for four years. His two daughters were not fans of Anne and recall her being a bit of an ice queen towards them and their father. The relationship ended when Anne kicked Derek out. One of his daughters, Bethan, believed it was because Anne had gotten everything she could out of Derek and his presence was no longer required. Sadly, Derek would pass away soon after separating from Anne after succumbing to liver disease. He started drinking heavily after the breakup, so Bethan believes that Anne kicking Derek out was the catalyst that would lead to his death at just 59. Their rocky relationship no doubt played a part too. In 2010, Anne, now regularly introducing herself as Lee, wrote a bizarre letter to the Pontypridd Observer, a regional newspaper. It read, God, if there is one, is dead. Lucifer is alive and thriving. The world is more heavily populated now than in the era of Jesus, and I imagine Lucifer smiling. Paedophilia, wars and many, many other horrors because of religion. Women carry burden and therefore have compassion and reason to protecting life. So let them in, boys. A wise man will change his mind many times. A fool, never. I'm not quite sure what to make of that letter, I'll be honest. Two years later, in 2012, Anne was interviewed by RCT Homes, a housing services magazine based in South Wales. They must have had a gardening section or something, as that's what she spent most of the interview discussing. As for how the interview came about and why she was chosen, I've no idea. She said in the magazine, Coming from New Zealand, I've grown up with dirt. I love being outside and I'd rather be mucking around in the garden than sat in front of the television. When I first arrived 16 years ago, nobody was doing anything with the garden. It looked pathetic and neglected. I was doing a lot of digging and it was hard work, but I knew I could do something beautiful. My neighbours now love the garden. We can sit outside together and catch up. I've chosen some plants that you would find in New Zealand to bring a little bit of the exotic to Bedai. Even towards the end of her life, Anne carried on with the story that she came from New Zealand. It's no wonder her neighbours and friends struggled to tell when she was being truthful or lying. 
they likely felt exactly how Ronald, Anne's dad, did all those years ago when Anne was going through her rebellious younger years. By August 2015, Anne was in her mid-70s. After a scary fall at her flat, she was taken to hospital where a scan revealed that she had late-stage brain cancer. Whilst in Royal Glamorgan Hospital, Anne penned a will which stated she wanted her home to be fully cleared out after she died. On October 30th, 2015, two months after receiving her diagnosis, Anne died of brain cancer. Her funeral was held a short while after her death at Glintaff Crematorium in Pontypridd. This is where the story becomes even more fascinating, in a disturbing way. On November 24th, 2015, just over three weeks after Anne passed away, Michelle James, one of her neighbours, popped over to Anne's flat to retrieve something. That something was a medical skeleton that Anne had kept wrapped up in the garden. Michelle's plan was to use the fake skeleton to scare one of her friends, but upon finding the package, she suddenly realised that the bones contained within the plastic wrap, cardboard and tinfoil were very much real. Formerly a carer for Anne, Michelle said, She had told everyone she had a medical skeleton, but I never saw it. I once asked if I could borrow it for Halloween, and she said, Don't you ever touch that. In total, the human remains had been wrapped up in over 40 layers of plastic, roofing felt and shopping bags. Michelle couldn't believe it when the police arrested her on suspicion of murder after she called in the discovery. She said, The police arrived with forensic experts. Then the officers asked me to come down to the station for an interview and they said I was being arrested on suspicion of murder. I said, You are having a fucking laugh now, aren't you? Forensic teams cordoned off the flats and it was eventually revealed on December 11, 2015 that the body belonged to Anne's husband, John. Believing he had perhaps been murdered somewhere else and dumped in the garden, police officers attempted to secure CCTV footage of the flats. They soon realised that only people who lived in the flats could access the rear garden. Outsiders would not be able to sneak in without going through the building's security doors first. The theory is that Anne murdered John and kept his body hidden under her bed for 18 years, from 1997 to 2015. After receiving a cancer diagnosis, it's assumed Anne then removed the body from her bedroom and dumped it in the communal garden, perhaps hoping to have the blame placed on someone else once she'd passed. John's post-mortem concluded that he had likely been bludgeoned to death due to the number of fractures present on his skull. Michelle James was released around the same time as John's body was identified in December 2015 because the police had named Anne as their new prime suspect. Upon hearing of the grim discovery in her friend's garden, Valerie Chalkley, who'd known Anne since the late 80s, contacted the police. She said how Anne once mentioned in passing that she had killed her husband with a stone frog. When the two friends reconciled after a period of not seeing each other, Valerie inquired as to what had happened to Anne's marriage to John. Valerie said, I wondered what had happened to you both. I would have thought by now that one of you would have killed the other. Anne replied, It's funny you should say that. I've killed him. I've battered him with a stone frog, which was at the side of the bed. He was just driving me mad. Every night he would get into bed crying and weeping, saying, You don't fancy me. Anne even reportedly would casually say to people, Watch out, or I'll frog you. Her friends put it down to her wild personality and Valerie didn't take the alleged confession seriously for the same reason. John Sabine's funeral was held at Kefini Park Cemetery in Lantrisant on January 19th, 2016. 
Several hearings took place over the following months as an inquest was launched into the death of John Sabine. One witness, salon owner Bernadette Adamiek, testified that Anne had once told her that she will one day be famous. When asked why, Anne said, because of the body in the bag. Andrew Barclay, the Glamorgan Valley's coroner overseeing the inquest, recorded a verdict of unlawful killing. He said, These were terrible circumstances. Precisely what happened will never truly be known, but it is without doubt that foul play was the cause of death and consistent with being caused by the stone frog. Did Anne kill her husband John? That seems to be the most likely scenario, but sadly the truth is something we'll never know. And that was the story of Lee Ann Sabine. It's one of them cases where it's pretty clear to the outsider that she probably did murder John, but it's not been confirmed. Thanks again, Alex Jones, for suggesting that case. Really, really interesting one, that. What do you reckon? Did Anne kill John? If not, what do you think happened? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this bizarre case. I've got three new reviews to read this week. GTQN left a four-star review on Apple Podcasts titled could do with more swearing it reads excellent second only to seeing red love the niche cases i'd barely heard of or forgotten case suggestions peter ling fiona anderson timothy bremer i've now added each of those cases to my spreadsheet thank you for those but i won't be needlessly increasing the volume of swear words used throughout my episodes i just don't see the need lynn left a five-star review on britishmurders.com titled my favorite british podcast it reads, I'm so glad to have stumbled across this podcast. By far, it is my absolute favourite British podcast to date. I have binged every episode so far and really enjoy the way they are presented. My favourite episode has to be the interview with Christopher Berry D. He sounded like such a great guy and I will be buying his books. As for Stuart, thank you for putting this podcast together so well. I love your presenting style and can't wait for the next seasons. And finally, Penny left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Very Addictive. It reads, I started listening while sat working at my desk. The content, murder stories, both famous and unknown, are really well read and I love the guest interviews. The great Yorkshire accent is really comfortable to listen to and keeps me interested throughout. And as I am binge listening at the more, it's going all day. And that's high praise from a Lancashire lass. Cheerio. Thank you GTQN, Lynn and Penny for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on my website. Thank you, Penny Clark, for supporting the show by becoming a Patreon member. I assume that's the same Penny that left one of the aforementioned reviews. Please continue emailing case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, you will get a shout-out when I get round to it. But that's it for this episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio! Cheerio!